What do Luther Vandross ballads, oil sheen spray, and twice as good have in common? They are all essential to some facet of the black experience. In the Nod, a new podcast from Gimlet Media, co-hosts Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings explore all the beautiful, complicated dimensions of black life. It's a fun and poignant examination of the biggest moments and the most underexplored corners of black art, media, and culture. Check it out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Just a heads up, this episode has some strong language and it might not be suitable for all ages. Enjoy the show. I used to be an usher at Ford's Theater where Lincoln got shot. Yeah? Get out. Yeah, and I quit like Chappelle, so I just stopped going. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, 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 everybody. It's Stretch Armstrong. Peace. My name is Bobito Garcia, a.k.a. Cool Bob Love. That was comedians Dave Chappelle and Donnell Rawlings. For what's good with Stretch and Bobito. Your source for untold stories and uncovered truths from movers and shakers around the world. We are talking art, music, politics, and sports. And everything in between. Chappelle and Rawlings are part of a month-long residency at the Radio City Music Hall this summer. We're going to talk to them about those shows and how they've gotten here in a minute. But since this is our first show, Stretch... Da, 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 da. Let's introduce ourselves. Why don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we, Bob? In the 90s, we did a hip-hop show out of New York City at Columbia University's WKCR 89.9. And for roughly 10 years, we ran a show that introduced the world to many of the household names in hip-hop like Jay-Z, Busta Rhymes, Eminem, Nas, Mob Deep. Biggie, Old Dirty Bastard, uh, Wu-Tang, Fuji's, DMX, Big L, and more. The 300 unsigned artists that debuted on our show, as in the first time they were ever heard publicly live, was on our show. To date, they've collectively sold 300 million plus records, and that number continues to grow. The show's impact shook up the recording industry and laid the foundation for what would be modern-day hip-hop. So, Stretch, that's what we did in the 90s, but right now, we have switched gears, and we're taking it somewhere else. Well, we used to do a music show. This is going to be an interview show in which we're bringing in people that shape the way we think about identity, art, politics, and culture. And we're really trying to dig into the stories that that you may not have heard from people that you might be familiar with. People like Stevie Wonder, Chance the Rapper, Mahershala Ali, just to name a few. (laughs) And we're going to bring you into our world, and perhaps put you on to some people that you might not be familiar with. People that we are inspired by. Some are people who we inspire. And we're all sort of part of this collective and what we want to do with NPR. We want to just share these stories with the entire wide audience that this platform receives. So let's get to it. Coming up next, Dave Chappelle and Donnell Rawlings. Boom. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Red Bull Radio. Whether it's the latest dancehall out of Kingston, techno from Berlin, underground hip-hop, or old soul gems, Red Bull Radio is the place to tune in and discover great music that's new to you. With in-depth interviews and live performances from festivals around the globe, plus music handpicked by influential artists, journalists, and DJs, you'll know what you were looking for when you hear it. Listen at RedBullRadio.com. And we're back. Joining us now is Dave Chappelle and Donnell Rawlings. Dave Chappelle is the creator, host, and star of Comedy Central's Chappelle Show and a legend of comedy, stand-up, live, 
sidewalk, whatever. He just released two smash hit specials on Netflix, and he's headlining a month-long residency at Radio City Music Hall in Nueva York. Donnell is a comedian known best for his work on Chappelle's show. What up, son? I can hear <laughs> <laughs> He's gone on to appear in a series of cult hit TV shows, including my favorite, The Wire, Black Dynamite, and Black Jesus. He's one of the performers during Dave's residency at Radio City Music Hall. Why all my credits start with black? <laughs> black ash, black candy. He's got a black food chain. He started everybody. And here is the black and ashes, first of all. Black Donnell. <laughs> welcome, welcome Be- black Bienvenidos to, the show. to our show. Yeah. <laughs> Salam alaikum. Wa salam. So, how did you two come together in the first place? My first introduction to Dave, I'm older than Dave, but Dave uh, has a longer stand-up career than, than I had. And when I was starting in D.C., you know, one of the things we always wanted was, like, what the guys from D.C. were doing. And I remember when I used to go to the Comic Connection to Greenbelt, and, and Dave, you remember the guy, Mike Washington. He might owe you some money. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but Mike Washington, he used to rave about you. He used to rave about you. And then when he used to rave about you, I was raving about myself. I didn't know who Dave Chappelle was. I was like, what make Dave Chappelle so special? He was like, man, he just he's animated, he's funny, he's smart, and um, he acts out all of his stuff. You know what I mean? So when he did that, I went to the drum. I was like, okay, I got to get more animated. (laughs) No, but I I knew of the legacy that he was starting. One thing about DC Comics, like when you know a guy's from DC, and then when he comes up to New York, it's just like an automatic type of connection. Like he's from, as we say, from the area. And that's how we started our friendship. (laughs) But when I went home, I used to go home to DC, and I'd be like, who's coming up? Everybody said you. Uh-huh. Everybody was like, yo, that's the new dude. And, and when you heard about Dave on the come up, how old were you? Because I know you started super young. I started I started when I was 14. Dang. By the time I met Donnell, I was probably 22, 23. Already a vet at 22. So, yeah, so that's what, like, I'm doing Radio City this month. The last night of the engagement is my birthday. And it will be the beginning of my 30th anniversary in stand-up comedy. So I'm real excited about, you know, like this run to me will be will be etched in my brain for good or for bad for the rest of my life. I think it'll be great, though. I don't doubt it. So as collaborators, how have you two influenced each other? I mean, can you think of a specific time when when one of you made the other's joke better? For me, like I'm always in a learning process. And when, you know, Dave chose me to be on the show, I, it wasn't like a collaboration you do this. I just was always in like the learning process. You know, I used to sit back in awe. And some of the things I used to do, I never really knew what I was doing. They would give me feedback like, yo, you killing it, you killing it. But I never really connected to that. I was connecting to a person that like I felt was one of the best sketch uh performance to ever do it and for me everything was just like a learning process and, and and I get these questions all the time when I do radio it was like what was the best part of working with Chappelle I was like that you know he he really trusted people that was close to him to have their own comedic sensibility you know what I'm saying it was never like of course we always had a blueprint you know we started with that but it was never like you can't say it like that because the words specifically say this you know um he would with the case for me always give me some room to bring to Donnell-isms or what I would bring to any character that came up with. I, mean, yeah, okay. I wouldn't even say I, that's the belief across the board. I say in the case of like a Donnell or a Charlie, you know, anytime you pass on the ball, that something funny's gonna happen. And, and, and a lot of times, like, you could tell on the floor the sketch was gonna be good just because it was, it was so funny doing it. 
Although my favorite sketch is not the best one we've done. What's your favorite? The first player haters ball. Me, you, Patrice, <laughs> and Charlie Murphy. Right. I think that was maybe the most fun I've ever had on a sketch. The player haters ball gives us an opportunity to hate on a diverse array of mock ass mocks, trick ass mocks, punk bitches and skip scaps, skanks and scallywags, hoes, heifers, hee haws, and hula hoops. Man, you ought to take that cane and beat whoever made that suit to death. <laughs> that was the dope thing about working that show. You never know when, when it was gonna hit like that, but it was just it was just so much fun. Yeah, so um I recently moved to DC with my wife and my son. And uh it's kind of incredible to drive around with her just to listen to her. Cause she'll be like, Bob, like that building wasn't there before. That whole block wasn't there before. And then of course there's a lot of other changes that are going on in DC as well. What do you miss about old DC and what do you not miss about old DC? I, I do not miss the anxiety of poverty. Uh, I do not miss the murder rate being the highest in the nation. I do not miss the National Guard policing us. Hmm. I miss Marion Barry. I do miss Marion Barry. <laughs> My first job was one of those Marion Barry jobs. So every, every kid in D.C. was guaranteed a job from 14 to 22, guaranteed a job. First jobs I ever had was was working in the mayor's uh, youth employment program. And those jobs were hard, but they were good. Got me used to working. I used to be an usher at Ford's Theater where Lincoln got shot. Yeah, get out. Yeah, and I quit like Chappelle show. I just stopped going. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then the guy called me up. He was like, "Yo, Dave, do you want to come get your check?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not falling for that." <laughs> so when you left the show, the people from the fourth theater was like, "We knew it was going to happen." Some people don't change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I had the very unique honor of being uh, painted on the mural at Ben's Chili Bowl. I, yo, I just drove by that this morning on the way to my son's school, and. Funny enough, I was like, oh, let me see if I can see Dave. But when you're driving by, it's in the alley. You can, oh, All you see is Prince. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm in the alley. Yeah, All you can see from the, from the street is like the Obamas and Prince. This is the mural that's on Ben's Chili Bowl, which is an institution in the city. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to tell you, like, like you're nobody in D.C. unless you had a picture inside Ben's Chili Bowl. So when Dave, and I don't get jealous or envious about a lot of things, but, like, you know, this dude got millions and everything. The only thing I was pitched about, I was like, he on the wall, son? <laughs> so deal. I hired a graffiti artist that's going <laughs> to that's gonna vandalize it, right? <laughs> and just put ancillary rolling dice right under <laughs> right, right under Dave. <laughs> so let's move on to uh, Radio City Music Hall. You've both performed extensively in venues of many sizes, but Radio City, is a, that's a unique venue, and it's, it's big as hell. How how do you how do you maintain the connection to an audience when you're in a, a more intimate setting? I mean, I've seen you riff extemporaneously with people in the audience for for half an hour, an hour. How do you bring that intimacy into an arena like Radio City? That's a no, that's a good question. I think that the shows that we're doing are very are very well curated shows. I mean, I, the, the talent that's on the shows, we, you know, we went through very carefully and picked it out. Oh, hold on a second. I didn't know my phone was on. I'm so sorry. Whoops. It's been chili bowl. It's, it's the fourth. Order. It's the fourth theater. <laughs> <laughs> the best part of it, you know, is that at our shows, 
we banned cell phones. They're like cell phone free shows. And, and you know, a lot of artists haven't experienced that. I think it makes an enormous difference in what a room feels like because it allows me to be more courageous with the types of things I'm saying. I got a wider margin of error. And it's oddly empowering to the audience, too. They get over not having their phone for a while. And if they need to use the phone, they go outside and use it. Even at Radio City, that that's the rule? Phone free, man. We we I work with a company yonder that it you locks. A, you they, get a pouch. Yeah, they get a pouch. Yeah. It's so funny, the Dave, because is sealed and they can't open it unless they leave the show. The only the last theater dates I've done was with me opening for you. And I got so used to like people not having phones. And I, I just a couple weeks ago, I was at NJ Pack and I did a theater. And people had their phone, it scared the shit out of me. I was like, what the hell is yeah. that? I was, like, I was like this, no, get him away! It's jarring. I, yeah. I thought you were going to wonder why no one was taking your picture. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but it was just it was just interesting because in a theater you know, environment, you know, I work with him, it's always you, you, you feel like people are 100% paying attention to you. But, you know, you know, piggybacking on what Dave said, it's weird when somebody's in your face, they're trying to watch the show, but then they got the camera in front of you. How do you pay attention to the show and you're trying to get video at the same time? It makes me just careful. When I see that camera, it gives me the feeling that I'm talking to more than the people in front of me. So then I start speaking with the precision of a lawyer, <laughs> which is which is not funny. So Has that ever backfired, though? I remember when, before the election, uh, you made jokes about Trump and Hillary Clinton in the same uh, performance. Were you at and that show? I don't think I was at that one, no. Okay, no. Okay. But because there was no film, no one could see the context in which you said what you said. And, and so you were quoted. And listen, comedy is, I mean, if you look at the, the literal words of what are being said, like comedians say outrageous stuff all the time. That, yeah, if you read that, a transcript you know, of anybody's that, exactly. it's going to sound crazy. I think that in that in that case, you know, what does Trump say? Fake news. <laughs> they they said I was a Trump supporter or something like this, uh, which was probably a deliberate misinterpretation of what I said. So, you know, the only thing I can tell people is you got to come see the show for yourself. You know, like at any point in a career like mine, they could take any any soundbite out of context, and it would sound awful. And I thought it was a a pretty unethical move. It's it funny because I was actually talking on stage about the ethics of Pussygate, beyond what we know he said, I was talking about the ethics of how we know what he said, about this ethics of, of secret recording, whether it's Donald Sterling or, or, or Donald Trump, and I didn't know that there was a journalist secretly recording while I was talking about that. We want to see the tapes. Yeah, Dave, you better hope those tapes don't come out. <laughs> I wouldn't talk too much. You don't know them tapes coming out. <laughs> Dave, you mentioned in a New York Times article that it's hard to find an angle on Trump that sounds fresh, almost like you're part of a chorus. Donnell, Dave, do either of you feel an added pressure to be political in your stand-up, and does it affect your writing? Added pressure? No. You know, Donald Trump's a weird phenomenon because I can't remember anybody, like, permeating the American psyche this completely. Everyone's always talking about this guy, thinking about this guy, speculating about this guy. It's really interesting. I mean, more so than, I mean, he's president of the United States, but still, he's a noisy, noisy president, man. His presidency is noisy. I don't know if I haven't seen the president, like we hear, literally hear about them every second, every minute every hour of the day. I was in the Bahamas like three weeks ago, and it was interesting because I'm, I'm like addicted to CNN. I cannot t 
turn it off, you know. So I'm walking in a casino, and this white dude walked past, and I was like, he looks so familiar. I was like, where do I know you from? Where do I know you from? He was like, D.C. maybe? I was like, you from D.C.? He said, no. He said, Jason Miller, right? He said, Trump guy. He's one of the guys that defends Trump and everything. He said, Jason Miller, Trump guy. And I looked at him, I said, oh, Donnie Rollins, Black Lives Matter, right? So, (laughs) (laughs) and it was funny, like, you know, you would think that those two, Make America Great Again and Black Lives Matter, would bump heads. But I stepped back and we looked at each other and we both had a little giggle, right? And I looked at him, I was like, boy, I was like, you got a tough ass job. And he looked around like somebody might be spying on uh-huh. him. And he said, you're, he said, you're right, you know? So, Dave, you hosted SNL for the very first time last year, which is kind of hard to believe. You and A Tribe Called Quest splash SNL. And, and I think for fans of hip-hop and fans of you, that felt like a type of victory. Afterwards, you had an after party. I was privileged enough to supply the music for about an hour so that D-Nice could take photographs. That was so dope. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think you got on at around 2 a.m. Um, at about 4.35, my legs just started wobbling, and I, <laughs> and I had to go home. I left the, the sun day, was coming up. But the next day, I heard you left the stage at 7 a.m. I didn't know that. Um, I was having a swell time. That's So, so listen, your battery pack is phenomenal. Fitness has become a part of your life. You're, it's obviously you, you hit the gym. Where do you get that battery pack, and where do you get the inspiration to have that kind of longevity? You know, the last time I saw you, be like you was, you was skinny spaghetti arms, you know? I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm cock D's now. <laughs> <laughs> the experience of doing Saturday Night Live was very difficult for me. I was happy to do it. You know, the main reason I did it, I've said, is because, you know, Fife had passed away, and Tippett called me and was like, this is our last tribe record and then Lauren and then Lauren Michaels put a, a, a heavy pitch on me and and I ended up doing it I was pretty sure Trump was gonna win in hindsight I imagined that Lauren knew that Trump was gonna win because he was real adamant about me doing the first slot after the election it was brilliant I, I would have never thought what I can tell you is the night that Trump won the writers room it said at Thirty Rockefeller was the saddest place on earth. It started out like buoyant, and everyone oh it's gonna be great, and blah blah blah, and everyone was typing and laughing and writing jokes, and they were doing this thing where they were calling the states on the ice at Rockefeller. So every few minutes you hear hooray or oh, and as the night went on, there was a lot of like oh, oh, oh no, and then. What the? <laughs> and then everyone stopped writing. And then everyone was just staring at the television. And then it was like sobbing. And and then I was horrified because I was like, damn, I got to come back to television for the first time. And I'm sure there won't, like, no nobody's writing a show. So I was frustrated because, one, I was certain that, I wasn't certain, I was pretty sure Trump, I live in Ohio, so you could smell it coming in the Rust Belt. And two was the, you know, you know, as a black American, how emotional do you get about the political landscape? There wasn't an Obama in this cycle, you know. It was just a battle, you know, I'm not, I almost said it. I shouldn't say it, but, you know, it was like a battle of the whites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the male white won. <laughs> yeah, 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 but, but it was, 
you know, Obama was different. It was a very special time, and it was a lot of optimism that facilitated him, his presidency. And then this was like a filthy, cynical election cycle, and Anthony Weiner's dick was in it, and <laughs> and the one guy's grabbing pussy. Excuse my language. Are we not on live, are we? <laughs> Glad you're asking after the fact. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. And then, and so, so you know, it was an enormous amount of pressure, and I was bummed about it. And what turned it around for me was, I went to the comedy club like towards the end of the week. I was like, man, I got to do a monologue. I got to get a monologue together. And I ran to Louis C.K. And me and Louis had a conversation, and Louis gave me. Two very good pieces of advice. One was, don't worry so much about the show as long as your monologue is good. I've never seen this before. I watched a white riot in Portland, Oregon on television the other night. <laughs> News said they did a million dollars worth of damage. Every black person was watching that like amateurs. <laughs> so I'm staying out of it. Just gonna take a knee like Kaepernick and let the whites figure this out amongst themselves. And the other piece of advice was, don't do your actual monologue at the rehearsal. And I didn't. I did a filthy version of a monologue at rehearsal. But I was in. I was actually. I was watching. I was there. I was watching it with that monologue. I think it was so good because at that time, in America, nobody was really laughing. You know, that was the first week. It was just like you were at a funeral and you were doing a eulogy for America. That room for like about five seconds, you know, people felt good. You know what I mean? They had a good time. Listen to what you're saying, and but they definitely believed in what you were saying. It was they couldn't have chosen a better person to do that personnel right after that election cycle. It was dope. The short of it is and thanks Donnell, but the short of it is that so after after it's all said and done, and I think that the Saturday Night Party originated this way, it's a tension reliever. I've never seen television made that way. That show is, a, is an enormous amount of pressure. And, and you'll see, like, throughout my career, I'll, I'll work with, like, alum from Saturday Night Live, and you can tell that these guys got a different acumen than everyone else. All of them can write. All of them can produce. All of them are very self-propelled because that's how they were trained. That's how they survive on their show. You know, but... If, it's much different than having a Chappelle show. They write 50 sketches to do 12. I would I would never do that. I would write I would write 12 sketches if I needed 13 and maybe stretch one. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm, so it was like it was it was good to see but when it got to that party I was ready to blow some steam. And that's that's what kept you going. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, 7 a.m. That was fun, man. It was a good time. Up next, it's time for the impression session. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients compared with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free with your first order plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com stretch. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. 
Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with the impression session. So, yo, Dave and Donnell, here's how it works. We're going to play you a song. We're not going to tell you what it is beforehand. We just want the two of you to vibe to it, digest it, and whatever it brings out of you, express it when we come back. And you can talk on top of the song if you want to. Sing along. Wait, can we turn the lights down? (laughs) (laughs) You'll stretch you up first. Hit it. Do we comment now? You can. This reminds me of a time when I just moved from Washington, D.C. to Brooklyn, New York, when the poetry scene was really hot, when people's finger finger snapping. They were snapping at Brooklyn Moon Cafe and Yasin Bey, most deaf at the time, they would come to the spot. And I met a, a young Erica Badu who I didn't know who she was, but she was a fan of my comedy because I used to go there. She was like, I think you're funny, blah, 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 this and that. And we exchanged phone numbers. The next, like the next week, I saw the video she did with D'Angelo. And then next thing I know, she was just this super, super huge star. And that's what that song reminds me of, my first uh, interaction and contact with Erica Badu. Well, you're going to work with her in Radio City, right? Yeah, but I, at that time, I wanted to really work with her. I wanted to work, man. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> That's obviously Erica Badu on and on, and that is the bootleg Summer in Sydney remix. Yeah, I've never heard that with strings before. Well, it's the, uh, the Quincy Jones sample that Farside used. Um, it's lovely. Your voice just got extra sexy when you hear Erica Badu. That's, that's what she does. <laughs> you that, took it to a choir store moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the impression game does. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of, honestly? Cleaning an apartment on Sunday. <laughs> Yo, you know, I don't know if you ever did that where you're just like relaxing and it's like Sunday and you're cleaning your apartment. You put a record on it you like and then... In those moments, I usually find I'm very content with my house or where my surroundings. You know what I mean? Just nothing like feeling safe in a clean room. Well, Dave, according to <laughs> to Elaine, the house don't be clean that often. So, Eric- oh, 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 turning red. Yo, they daddy, son. They are so disrespectful right now. I was just joking. I was just joking. Yeah, I want to work. By the way, I don't clean up anymore. I, I have people that do that for me now. <laughs> How you been? I, I'm good. I'm looking forward to that show, Erica. Me too. I, I, I am too. I can't wait to see you. Likewise, man. Can I tell y'all how I met Daniel? Oh, yeah, I want to hear your side of it. Let's see how truthful he was with his story. Let's go. Brooklyn all day! All right, go ahead. (laughs) Well, when we were doing these, like, in the early 90s, mid-90s, we were doing these open mics, you know, to just kind of, everybody was kind of working out their material at the coffee shop. So we we had to fit in with the coffee shop aesthetic. So we had to change whatever material we were working on to kind of fit that. So Daniel was, would get up and, and do poetry. What? Wow. And, yeah, he got he would get up and do poetry. And I would kind of change my music into poetry kinda. Just you know, we were just trying to use their platform and 
So Donnell got up there one night and said, I'm going to say this poem, and the name of my poem is How Can We Fuck Without Kissing? (laughs) 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 Oh, on and on and on and on. And I got up and did on and on right after that. It was hard for me. They wouldn't let me go to, like, on a comedy circuit, so I used to go to a little poetry spot, and that's what I met her. And I will say this about Erica, like, as much success, success as she's got, there's been times I've seen her place, I was like, she's not going to remember me, and she always, like, greet me in the most humble, most dope dope person. Because I, 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 the I, I first met. time she heard you speak, you did a poem called How Can We Fuck Without <laughs> Kissing. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of unforgettable, you know? Yeah, how, who would ever, so what What was the conclusion of the poem? I don't know. I blacked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, Donnell, Dave, and Erica, you all are part of this Radio City Music Hall residency slated for the entire month of August. And it's, a, it's like a hodgepodge of stand-up, music. It's clear that you have a crew of people that are like family to the fullest, um, but you have some new faces and some new voices, including Childish Gambino, Ali Wong, Chance the Rapper. So what goes into the curation of the family vibe with the inclusion of new voices and, and putting that forth in such a legendary venue like the Radio City Music Hall? Well, I don't know. I think I think a lot of it is organic, but but a big part of it is like something like this can't happen unless a lot of uh, very significant people you know, put their ego aside. Radio City is what they call show business a vanity gig. In other words, it's not necessarily the kind of gig you'll do to get rich. It's expensive to play there, you know, it's not, and it's not easy real estate to get. So the opportunity arose, and I, and I called people that I, I respect and admire and love, and, and everybody came together, man. These times in my career are, like, priceless. It's like, you know, I feel real fortunate to be part of these things. And... uh I'm, I'm like very excited about it. This will this will be my thirtieth anniversary, man. This is like the, the way to do it with the people you respect. Amazing, and Dave also chooses people that I have not had babies with. No, you should have came back to Brooklyn more. <laughs> the list is short, short list, but it's a good one. Word. Well, um, Erica, we're about to play a song for Dave and Donnell, and you're more than welcome to hang out. So Sammy, cue up the record, and uh, we're going to play this next song. This reminds me of daishiki shopping. Sage burning. Can I guess what the, let me see if I can guess whose record this is. I'd be very impressed if you know the artist. I'm sure you, you'll recognize the composition though. The composition is Equinox. It's a Coltrane tune, right? It's a Naima. Naima, Naima. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to guess who's playing it though. Yes, it's uh, you can bring it down, Sam. 
the artist is Kendra Spirit and I was ensemble. about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wasn't. <laughs> wait, wait, Kendra, say it again. Kendra Spirit Ensemble. Kendra from, Spirit Ensemble. Yeah, they're from Amsterdam and uh, on a label called Kendra Spirits. Um, some records scream at you when you're DJing, and some records kind of like they st- stick in your crate. Erica, you spend too, and I know you have a vinyl collection. You know, there's, there's moments yeah. where it's just like a song. You look at the spine, you look at the album cover, it's just like play me, and and that record just there's so much percussion, and and it's not always on four four, so it's not like popular American music. It's it's it starts running running on polyrhythms. Which brings us back to Africa and, and the intricacies of, of drum beats from there. And then when you add in John Coltrane and, and his poetry as a songwriter, it just starts. It just starts hitting different chords in your body. I, I don't know if it does the same feel. Yeah, train absolutely, absolutely. They, you ever heard of the the Church of John Coltrane? Mm-mm. It's a church in the Bay Area where they literally just play train music. <laughs> That's the church. That's the service. I oh. mean, they play live. They play live, but. Yeah, I like that record, man. Amazing. But yo, thank you so much to all three of you for being on our show. Much love. Thank you, man. And don't forget Radio City all the month of August. You've got to come through. I would love to. Pick a night, any night, every it's, night. It's going to be amazing. It's it really is. I'm there. I'm there. I'll take the tr- I'll take the Amtrak up from DC and I'll I'll I'll, I'll stand online. Peace and light. Yes, sir. Bless. All right, bye, Erica. That's our show. This podcast was produced by Sammy Yenigan, edited by Steve Nelson and Nigeri Eaton. This episode features music by DJ Ellie Escobar. Special thanks to our VP of Programming, Anya Grunman. The executive producer is Abby O'Neill. If you like the show, you can hear more at NPR.org. Or follow us on Twitter at Stretch and Bob or on Facebook and Instagram at Stretch and Bobito. Join us next week for Mahershala Ali, the Oscar Award winner. Peace!